blot them out in boundless grace. We have a God who abounds in grace towards us. What a rejoiceful, rejoicing word that we have sung together from Psalm 51. We come now to the preaching of God's word. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 as we continue along in our study of this letter of Paul. We will be in verses 4 through verse 9 this morning. Hear now the reading of the word of the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come now to the preaching of your word, and we ask that you would Open the eyes of our hearts to see wondrous things from your law. Lord, as we have heard in that call to worship that we are here to gaze upon the beauty of your temple, Lord, would you show us beautiful things this morning? Lord, help our hearts to turn from sin, to turn from the distractions and cares of this world to hear now your word proclaimed to us and fill us with the hope and joy of salvation that is in Christ Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen. Have you ever had life feel like it is under pressure? That's a rhetorical question, because I'm certain that you have. I'm certain that you have had life feel like you are under pressure. Life under pressure is a common experience for all of us. In fact, as your pastor, I can guess that many of you, if not all of you here this morning, in one way or another, have life under pressure right now. They may be small in comparison with others, but you may feel like it is still a significant thing. Maybe you're not facing a life-debilitating illness, the loss of a loved one, but those things in your life that continue to crop up that you feel the pressure constantly on you, it doesn't leave. But maybe you are here this morning, and life is extremely difficult today. That you leave here, and the anxieties, the sorrows of your heart don't seem to leave. Well, this text is a text for you this morning, for those who live life, a life under pressure. God's Word has something to say to us about how we navigate through the pressures of this life. And I'd like to look at this in the four different ways that Paul presents to us in this passage. First, a call to rejoice. Secondly, is that we are to let our gentleness or reasonableness be known. Third, we are to pray through anxiety. And lastly, we are to dwell on virtue. 
These are the four things that Paul gives to this congregation in the city of Philippi 2,000 years ago that are relevant for us today of ways to live out life under pressure. Firstly, rejoice. Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice, as if the people had forgot two seconds before that they needed to rejoice. He says it again. This is important for us as we think about this because we need to understand the frequency of the call to rejoicing that Paul lays out in this passage. Many commentators say that this is actually the point of the whole letter of Philippians, that it is a call to rejoice in the middle of trying circumstances. Eight times in this book, Paul uses this word rejoice. One of them is here, and there are seven other places. There are many causes for despondency, for despair, for Paul, and for this little congregation. We see this in Paul's own life and in their lives. Chapter 1, verse 18, in the first part, Paul tells them that he is going to rejoice. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. In that, I rejoice. Other people are trying to afflict Paul. He says this in verse 17. These people are proclaiming Christ, but they're doing it with false motives to try and afflict me. Yet Paul still finds reason in the midst of that to rejoice. But Paul goes on in the second half of verse 18. He says, yes, and I will rejoice before I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Christ Jesus, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul goes on to enumerate that what he's thinking of here is he may die. Whether he lives or whether he dies, he lives to the Lord. Verse 22, or 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Whether he lives or dies, Paul finds reason to rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 17, Paul continues about his own suffering on behalf of the churches. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Paul finds, even in the midst of his giving his life for the sake of these people, he is in prison for the sake of the gospel. Even in the midst of that, suffering for the churches, he finds reason to rejoice. Chapter 2, verse 28. Epaphroditus, this messenger from the congregation to Paul, to bring financial support to him, this young man had become sick on the way and almost died. And Paul says in verse 28, I am the more eager to send him to you, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Paul finds reason to rejoice. Chapter 3, verse 1, in one of the more surprising ways, Paul says this, Finally, my brothers, to rejoice in the Lord, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. And then he goes on to talk about these people who are preaching a false gospel. When false teachers must be confronted, Paul still finds reason to rejoice in the midst of the troubles of life. These are all the reasons that Paul finds in his own life and the life of this congregation to rejoice, 
In our own lives, when finances are tight, when people fail to live up to our expectations, when doctors bring back bad news, when things are turning against us in all the ways that we become afraid, this is a cause and a time to rejoice. See, when life gets intense, we can't see any good. It becomes darkness, as the psalmists so frequently tell us. All around us, all we can see is pain, suffering, sorrow, and everything that we lack. But Paul teaches us here, through his own example and words, how to deal with life under pressure. He says to rejoice. Now, this doesn't mean to find the silver lining in life. Often this world will tell you, well, there's other good things happening in this world and you just need to focus on those good things. That may be good worldly advice, but that is not what Paul is advocating here. That ultimately will not carry the day because your death may kill you, or your death will kill you, I should say. You will die. All of the good things in this life will come to the end. As the Proverbs told us this morning, your, your wealth will no longer be there when you die. Instead, this is not a, instead of finding the silver lining in life, this is trusting our lives to a faithful Savior. We rejoice because of who we belong to. Listen to what he says. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. We trust ourselves to a faithful Savior. Some of you may know this phrase, a faithful Savior, and where that comes from in our tradition. Heidelberg Catechism, question one says, what is your only comfort in life and death? A lot of times we focus on that word comfort, but I want to focus on that word only. What is our only comfort in life and death? And this is what it says, that I with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins, redeemed me from the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. But here's the the cause for rejoice for us today in life under pressure. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. See, in all these things, Paul sees that God is bringing good. False brothers or brothers in Christ who have wrong motives, Paul can see good in this, that God is still bringing good. The gospel is going out. His suffering on behalf of the churches is actually leading to the gospel going out more. He is in prison, and what did we see in chapters 1 and 2? That now the gospel is being made known more and more from a prison. Even if he must die, then that's even better. He gets to go be with Jesus. What loss is that to him? See, in all these things, Paul can see that God is using this 
for his good purposes. He not only is bringing good, but he will bring good out of everything in his life. This rejoicing comes from a heart that knows and believes that God, despite all the difficulties that we see and feel in our lives around us, has good purposes. And this is why we can rejoice in every circumstance. Now, we don't rejoice for the sufferings. We're not, sados, uh, we're not masochists. We don't love and enjoy pain as if pain itself is a good thing. But we are those who can rejoice because we know that God is always at work in every circumstance for our salvation, to bring us along and home to heaven to change and transform us, to spread his gospel, to expand his kingdoms in ways that we would never have seen nor expected. So there is much cause for rejoicing, as Paul says, always, always rejoicing. Then Paul turns, I'm going to skip over this phrase, the Lord is at hand, but I want to make a brief comment on this. Or I will get to that actually in verse 5. I apologize. But then he turns here and said, after saying, I will rejoice, he says, let your reasonableness. Some of our Bibles have a footnote there. It says, or gentleness. I believe gentleness gets a little bit closer at to what this meaning is, but these concepts are related, and I'll explain this. Why, why does he say, let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known? Well, what happens when the pressure gets turned up in our lives? Who do we become? Well, you know this. You become harsh. You become irrational. You do things that otherwise you would think, why did I do that? Because your life was under pressure. Your heart is weighed down with the sorrows and cares of this world. But I want you to hear what Paul says. He says something interesting. He doesn't say, be gentle. He says, let your gentleness be known. He says, you are actually already in possession of gentleness. Now let it be known. That's a very interesting thing to say when we are under pressure, because I think many of you might object this way. I don't feel very gentle right now. And being irrational is a bit difficult. Or being irrational is, or being a rational person is a bit difficult right now. I can't think clearly. Life is too hard. Excuse me while I just let off some steam for a moment. How do we answer that? How do we answer that in our hearts? How can Paul say, let your gentleness be known? Well, Paul knows what's true about you as a believer. He knows who you really are in your heart. Is that you have a new self in Christ. You are a new creation, a new creature. Colossians 3.10 says, You have put off the old self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. You have Jesus Christ dwelling in you, producing All of these things. So that they become yours. 
This is what happens when you trust in Christ, is he actually begins to form virtue in you. True virtue. You say, Pastor, how does that work? Because I don't always see this, and I'm sure my spouse, my coworkers, my friends could testify against that. This is what Scripture speaks about as faith working through love. See, when we trust in Christ, we acknowledge our own unworthiness. We acknowledge that we are actually unrighteous. We proclaim that Jesus Christ alone has what we need, true righteousness. And that is why we trust in Jesus alone. We may see an external form of righteousness that to this world looks good, but inside of our hearts we realize, I am wicked. Sold in sin, born in sin, as we sang from Psalm 51. But something happens when we look to Christ by faith. We say, that is my righteousness, Jesus Christ. Is that God creates in us a longing for righteousness. This does not come from ourselves. It comes from God. It is his gift. It is called regeneration. It's how he makes us new. He helps us to see that this is the righteousness that we want. And that it can only be satisfied in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And so we long for righteousness, and we look to Jesus. But it's not only this. As we long to have Jesus' righteousness be our own through faith, we long for our lives to be conformed to that. Now that longing waxes and wanes. It goes up and down throughout life. Yet it does not leave. We're displeased with ourselves and displeased with our unrighteousness, but we long to be clothed in righteousness. And so as we look to Jesus Christ by faith, this produces love. Now, faith and love are not the same thing, nor are they joined together in such a way that faith is loving. There are other traditions in this world would say that it is a loving faith. No, we look alone. We say we have nothing in us. There is no true love in us that is worthy in God's sight. And so that is why we look to Jesus Christ alone. But as we do that, God then begins to form in us love. So when you don't feel gentle, when you feel irrational and harsh, what do you do? Do you just say, be loving, be gentle, be a good person? Is that what you need? No. You look to Christ, who is your righteousness. You say, here is all my gentleness. Here is all of my reasonableness. And whatever irrationality, whatever harshness is in me, this has been covered by Christ. This is the way that we let our gentleness be known. Looking to Christ and saying, Lord Jesus, you make this known through me because you have formed new in me this new man. I want to focus on this word gentleness or reasonableness. 
Another way you could even translate this is forbearing. Simply put, this is when we are wronged, we don't revile in return. First Peter chapter 3, echoing words of Jesus, says, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Reasonableness and gentleness are related. Reasonableness means we do not immediately react to things. Irrationality means I'm just reacting out of my gut emotion when things come my way, when people say things or do things that make me angry. I just let things go. There's no reason or thought behind it. We don't give thought to our words and responses. But reasonableness pauses. It waits. As we heard in Proverbs, the righteous give thought to their words. And that results in gentleness, does it not? It results in a way of saying, I don't need to inflict harm in this situation. Instead, I know that the pathway that is going to bring peace here is through being gentle. I'm not out here to destroy another person, but to win them over. As First Peter says, to not respond with reviling, but instead bless. Bless them. So let your gentleness be known when you are under pressure, looking to Jesus Christ, waiting and pausing. Thirdly, Paul gives us this next step of advice, of instruction of what we ought to do when the pressure is turned up in life. Verse 6, do not be anxious, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Don't be anxious. Is this like the phrase that you hear when somebody is freaking out and you say, just calm down? We all know that doesn't actually work very well. In fact, it might incite that person to become more and more angry, more and more upset. Just calm down. Maybe you've experienced that. A sibling or a family member, a loved one saying, just calm down. And we want to react, don't you tell me to calm down. Do not be anxious. What does that produce in our hearts? Don't be anxious. It may actually produce more anxiety. But something interesting happens in this book of Philippians. Paul himself speaks of his own anxiety. I read this verse before. I'll read it again to you. When Paul is sending Epaphroditus back, he says, I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again and that I may be less anxious. Listen to what Paul says, that I may be not anxious. No, he says that I may be less anxious. Paul assumes that anxiety is a part of life in this fallen world. Paul knows there are things that are going to cause me anxiety. Sometimes anxiety is a proper barometer that things are out of whack in your life. Paul just shared one. His own co-worker, his own friend was possibly going to die. 
And this congregation heard about this news that their friend was going to die or was on his deathbed. Imagine that. If we had a missionary we sent out from this congregation to a foreign country, let's say Canada, about that far away, but we just send them up to Canada and three weeks later we hear that they are very sick and about to die. And then we don't hear anything for a month. How would you feel? You would certainly feel anxious. How are they doing? What's happened? Anxiety is a response that, in one sense, is normal. It's understandable. But the problem isn't so much whether we feel anxiety, but what we do with that anxiety. Do we just let it stew? Do we sit in that anxiety? Do we let it fester? Or do we just simply try to deal with it ourselves? This is how we normally deal with anxiety. We try to think our way through it. We try to make plans. We come up with a beautiful thing. If you're like me, you like to make a beautiful spreadsheet of, that's going to explain about how everything is going to work out in life. Maybe you have your own mechanism that you use to figure out all the problems and so you can deal with them in your life. A to-do list. A counselor. A friend. A companion. Now, those are all good ways to deal with anxiety in our lives, and some of them can be helpful. But that is where we begin, and that is where we end with dealing with anxiety in our lives. We think we can do this ourselves. We, in our own selves, can overcome our anxiety. There are other ways we try to overcome anxiety in our life. We medicate ourselves. The most common way that you and I, as adults, try to deal with anxiety is through a little well-known substance called alcohol. Now, alcohol is good and serves its purposes for joy and celebration and relaxation. We see this throughout Scripture. But this is how we end up trying to deal with the anxieties in our life. We try to numb. We try to forget our problems. And alcohol we think, is a wonderful aid to help us in that. Sometimes people take drugs, illicit drugs. We smoke marijuana. Maybe you do even more significant drugs than that as a way to deal with the anxiety of your life. And some of us turn to doctors to prescribe us anxiety medications. Now hear me, as your pastor, I am not against anxiety medications. There is a time and a purpose in life when those can be a necessary and important step in your life to help you deal with anxiety. But we cannot excuse ourselves from the duty that Paul is calling us to here as the means by which we deal with anxiety in our lives. We can think, well, if these are the ways that I resolve anxiety in my life. I deal it with myself. I take substances. That's going to make everything okay. When we don't actually ever address the core problems in our lives that are causing anxiety for us. Ultimately, a medication is not going to solve the things in your life that are producing anxiety. Drugs will not do that. Creating an amazing plan will not do that. This is what Paul says of how we are to deal 
first and foremost with anxiety in our lives. His command here is quite simple. Let your requests be made known to God. Instead of holding those things that are causing anxiety in our lives, we actually make them known. This is what anxiety does. We want to hold them in. Hold on to them. Deal with them ourselves or not deal with them at all. And Paul says, no, let your requests be made known to God. You have circumstances in your life that you feel like you have no control over. And we deal with this in all kinds of ways that may or may not be helpful. But Paul says, no, turn to the one who has control over all circumstances in your life. Let your requests be made known. Jesus says, don't be anxious about food, clothing, or this totally absurd thing, even your own life. Why? Because God cares for you. And that is why we present our requests with thanksgiving. As Paul says, we give thanks not only for what God has provided for us in our life, but we give thanks because we know and we trust that God will provide for us. He will care for us. Even as Paul shows us, even if that leads to our own death, because we will rise from the dead. Whether I am in plenty or in want, as Paul says later in this book, I have learned the secret of being content. Now, I'll have much more to say on that next week, so please come back. But Paul tells us an amazing promise that happens when we pray to God. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It is an absolutely beautiful promise to us today. You cannot have this peace through your own effort. You can have some semblance of peace in this life through your own effort. This is true. This is why we plan. This is why we organize and do things that are good. You can have a semblance of peace, but you cannot have this peace of God through your own effort. Because it surpasses your understanding. It is simply a gift from God. And so we look to all these other things in our life to give us the peace that we want. And we fail to look to the one who can give us the true peace that is greater than anything else that this world can give to us. And so Paul tells us this promise to remind us to go to the Lord to get his peace. One commentator put it this way, this promise of this peace is given irrespective of whether their concrete requests are granted or not. God can give you, in fact, will give you this peace whether or not the circumstances in your life turn out the way that you want them to. This does not mean, as Paul shows us, that all your anxieties will be taken away. Paul said, I'm sending him back to you so that I may have less anxiety. Paul understands there are things in life that are going to give you anxiety. That is part of living in a fallen world. 
But God promises that if we go to him and make known our requests, he will grant to us a peace that surpasses all understanding so that we can navigate through the difficulties and challenge of this life. The first thing we ought to do as Christians, and the last thing that we ought to do as Christians, is to pray. When we are anxious, pray to him. Let your requests be made known to him. You say, Pastor, well, I don't know. I I don't know about this. And my question for you is, are you praying? Because if you're like me, most often you didn't pray about it. You don't have peace because you've turned to yourself or something else to resolve the anxiety in your heart. Turn to the Lord. He has promised you. He has promised his peace to you. Fourthly, we dwell on virtue. This is the fourth pathway of peace that Paul gives to us in this passage. Life under pressure, what do we do? Paul is telling us simply to redirect our our thoughts. Because many of us, when the pressure builds around us, our minds and thoughts go to dark places. We think of all that is wrong in the world, and trust me, there is plenty of evidence of wrong that is in this world. All you need to do is open your phone for 10 seconds, and you will find everything that is wrong with this world within two clicks. Not only must we pray to the Lord, but we also must learn to redirect our thoughts, because our sinfulness in our hearts will continually try to redirect us towards everything that is wrong. And so Paul is calling us to redirect our thoughts. Think on these things. Set your mind on these things. And then he gives another promise. The God of peace will dwell with you. Now there's a connection between our thoughts and God's dwelling. Just as God has promised to honor and bless the means of prayer, he also will honor and bless these means of what we fill our minds and thoughts with. He has promised that he will make his presence known as we think on these things. Now, it's not that our thinking on these things makes us worthy of God blessing us with these. There is nothing worthy of us in us for why God would make his presence known. It is simply a grace that he gives to us. Yet he promises, I will bless these means. We can't assume that if we think on the opposite of these things, we think on falsehood, we think on things that are dishonorable, unjust, unholy, and filthy, will God make his presence known to us in that? No, as we set our minds on these things, God will fill us with the knowledge of his presence. The great truth in all of this passage, verses 4 through 9, even back up to verse 2 as we looked at last week, is that God not only has established peace, but will continue to reveal his peace to his people. And our ability and willingness to follow all of these commands, these calls to us this morning, flows from God's free grace. See, we're undeserving of any of these blessings. We're undeserving of God showing his peace to us. We deserve not to rejoice, but we deserve to mourn. 
Yet God gives us all of these blessings in the Lord, in Jesus Christ. He gives them freely to us so that in any circumstance we can rejoice. So that in any circumstance we may call on him and we know that he will hear us. He hears every single prayer that you offer to him. No matter how weighed down your heart is. And God freely bestows all these benefits on us so that we might know and think on the things that are excellent. Because we have already received in Jesus Christ everything that is pure, excellent, and praiseworthy. We have a God who blesses sinners. And so rejoice, brothers and sisters. As you rejoice, Rejoice as you pray. Rejoice as you think on what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do rejoice in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we cannot do this except as you work it in our hearts. So we ask you, Lord, to cause us to be people who rejoice, who find reason in Christ to have joy. Help us, Lord, to let our reasonableness, our gentleness be known. Help us to pray and turn to you when we are anxious. Help us, Lord, to direct our thoughts to all these virtues that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you for Christ, who is our hope, our salvation, and will bring us home to be with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.